During the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, he appeared to many different people in many different settings and for a variety of reasons. In each appearance, the purpose for that appearance was received. For example, he appeared to the apostles in the upper room, or rather in Bethany, in the upper room of Bethany, on the day of his resurrection, and there he commissioned them to their role that they would fulfill as apostles. Thomas was a doubter and said, I'll not believe unless I can put my finger into the nail prints in his hand and thrust my hand into the spear wound in his side. And a week later he appeared when Thomas was there said, Thomas, put your finger in the wound. Put your hand into my side. And Thomas fell before him and said, My Lord and my God. John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him while he was upon the earth. But later, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James and probably others because they all became believers and became missionaries with the exception of James who remained in Jerusalem as a prominent leader. On one occasion, he told his disciples, his apostles, to meet him on a specific mountain in Galilee. That'll do no good, brother. It'll just be in my way. Thank you. And uh, they met him. Matthew chapter 18 records that appearance. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and disciple all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, TCF, this is a very important passage to us, isn't it? Because God has called us to have as a central purpose for our existence the preparation and the releasing of people under the harvest. But this morning, I want to ask a question that precedes that mission, and that is this. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, the word I bring today could be understood by some as rather harsh or perhaps rigid. We must remember that everything that we say today is couched in God's graciousness. Also, always remember that any time I point a finger at you, my thumb is holding three fingers back that point at me. And so everything that I say asking you a question today, I'm asking that very same question of myself. And so today we ask ourselves, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? What is a disciple? The Greek word that we translate as disciple in the noun is mathetes in the feminine form, mathetria, only one time in the New Testament, the female disciple. The verb mathetuo, which means to be a disciple or to become a disciple. 
But these words are all coming from the root word manfano, which means to learn. More than that student who sits in study hall and pours over history books, memorizing dates so he can pass an exam. But this word implies that one is a learner. He is absorbing what is being taught. He takes it into himself and even begins to live on the basis of what he has learned. That's a disciple. And a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who accords to Christ the authority to be that teacher, listens to that teacher, and receives from that teacher who is Christ all that is taught. He takes it to heart. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? There are prerequisites required of those who seek to be disciples of Christ, as there are prerequisites for anyone who will enter into any kind of an educational program. You have to have certain uh, classes behind, certain degrees, certain diplomas. There are prerequisites to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10 records one of the longest speeches that we find in Scripture presented by Jesus. This uh, describes a time when Jesus was in Galilee. It describes a time when he was getting ready to send the twelve out on a missionary preaching tour among the cities of Galilee. This episode took place near the second year, uh, the end of the second year of Jesus' ministry. And in this long discourse, Jesus describes what it will be like for them as they go out as disciples. Notice verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as the teacher, and the slave is his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed, hidden, not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so he continues. And then in verse 34 we find this. Notice he's talking about the experience of a disciple. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the member of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life shall lose it, but who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He is saying, 
if you want to be my disciple, then you must love me more than anything else. Luke chapter 14 records incidents that took place about a year later. Jesus was in Perea. He was drawing close to the time of leaving Perea and starting back toward Jerusalem. A Pharisee invited him to dinner, and so Jesus sat with dinner and made various comments challenging their own perception of things that really uh, are important. You'll notice as he uh, responded to their comments, beginning with verse 15 of that chapter, then one of those uh, who were reclining at the table with him heard this. And he said, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He said to him, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. You know the story. We will not read it. But when the invitation was given, uh, they began to make excuses. And one man said, I bought a piece of land. I need to go look at it. Sorry, I can't come. Another man said, I've just bought a yoke of oxen. I need to try them out. I can't come. Another said, I've just taken a wife. I can't come. And then in verse 25, we notice Jesus' interesting response to all of this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to talk about counting the cost before you decide to become a disciple of Jesus. A man starts to build a tower. He first asks, can I afford to do it? Or else he gets halfway through and can't finish and people mock him. A king decides to go against war. He asks, do I have sufficient troops to really win this battle? And if he doesn't, he doesn't go. Instead, he sends an embassage to make peace with his enemy. Jesus was saying this, before you enter into my school of discipleship, stop and think about the cost that's going to be required. And that cost is everything. You must love me more than you love your land. You must love me more than that yoke of oxen. You must love me more than your new wife. Nothing must ever rise in your hierarchy of priorities above who I am in your heart and in your loyalty. Seems like harsh words, doesn't it? And yet these are the words. Can't we think of so many illustrations in life in which we have seen loves that exceed the love for Jesus? As I was thinking about these commands of our Lord and these requirements, there came to mind a situation that developed some years ago, actually took place some years ago. There's a church in Missouri in which the church was having problems in leadership, and so they asked me to come and spend a few days with them. And when I go into those situations, sometimes I stay in a motel, but usually I stay in the home of one of the elders, and I did on this occasion. This particular elder was a man who was an exemplary disciple of Jesus. He was a man who had 
withstood Christ for years, years, but a very strong man who worked with him at the factory kept witnessing and witnessing, and finally he accepted Jesus, and when he did, he embraced him with all of his heart and became a strong witness for the Lord in that factory. In time, he became an elder, and when the preacher began to preach false doctrine, this man stood up and resisted him and paid a tremendous price for taking his stand for Jesus Christ. That was the home, the man uh, in which I was housed on this visit. Now, when I stay in a home, I'm always very careful to be fully dressed when I appear, <laughs> uh, be as careful as I can in decorum. I'm always very careful to be a, avoid being in a room with a wife when we're in the house alone, as sometimes we are. In this particular situation, it became a problem. The man's wife had come into the room inappropriately dressed. She began to speak to me in a way that made me uncomfortable. Her body language began to trouble me. And I realized there was some kind of a problem here with this woman. Then I talked to one of the other elders, and he on his own said to me, I'm troubled by this woman's behavior. He said, I was standing in line the other day somewhere. She came up behind me, began to press her body against my back. Something's wrong with this woman. <laughs> and then I found out that she was involved in some way with the uh, clerk at the local feed mill. In time... She began to say to her husband that she wanted to start going to bars and dances and clubs. And some of us tried to talk to him about his wife's behavior, and he resented it. And she began to say, if you want to be my husband, this is the life we're going to lead. That man began to going with, going with her to bars and clubs and drinking. He wanted, she wanted him to dance with other women while she danced with other men, and that's the lifestyle they turned to. Sad. His wife was more important to him than being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. My heart breaks for her <laughs> because of the clutches of Satan's fingernails into her body. And oh, what a tragedy for this man who loved his wife more than he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, count the cost. In Matthew chapter 8, we find an incident which Jesus was getting ready to get into a boat, a crowd around him. And as he was getting ready to get into the boat, in verse 19, a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, The foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know what you're saying, he said? <laughs> Another man said, Lord, permit me to first go bury my father. And, you 
no, then I'll follow you. And Jesus said, follow me and allow the dead to bury the dead. Harsh words, but Christ must have looked into the heart of that disciple and realized that his priorities were wrong. In the light of these scriptures, let me ask you this morning, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 11 emphasizes uh, another truth concerning being a disciple of Jesus, and that truth is lordship. Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Now sometimes in the past I've heard teachers get up and say, now Jesus is saying, I will get in the yoke with you, and because I'm on one side of the yoke and you're on the other side like oxen are yoked, that means then it's going to be easy. But that's not what this is talking about at all. The yoke speaks of submission and authority. Slaves wore yokes. Some of them did. Paul in Galatians chapter 5 and also in Acts 15 talks about the yoke of the law. The yoke speaks of authority. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. Allow me to become your master and you become my slave. That's what discipleship requires. And here we even have the word Montano when you learn of me. He's saying, let me be your master teacher about religion and how to live. The Greek word is apog. Get your learning from me is what the Greek literally says. So it's not learn about me, but learn from me. Let me be your teacher. But before that happens, I have to become your Lord. Take my yoke upon you. In the light of this passage, let me ask, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you taken his yoke upon you. In the Great Commission, a prerequisite to being a disciple is to be immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word uh, that we normally say in really mean is the Greek word that means upon, which means be immersed upon the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're doing this as their representative and upon the authority of them Jesus said, go make disciples. How do you do it? Immerse in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then teach people to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Remember in Paul's uh, writings in Romans chapter 6, he said, in case you didn't understand it, let me explain to you the sense of what really happens in immersion. He said... You die and bury. <laughs> You're buried in the watery grave of Christian baptism. You are raised to walk in newness of life. And then he says, and it's a mental attitude, therefore consider yourselves dead unto unrighteousness, but alive 
you see, under righteousness. It's how we view ourselves. It's how we view what happened to us then. And it's our ongoing mental attitude. We die when we are immersed. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul talked about we are a new creature. And in Galatians chapter 5, where people have been pressing circumcision, Paul said, no, not circumcision, but it's a new creature. In other words, you can circumcise an old creature. That's not what we're talking about. It's a new creature we become in Christ Jesus. And the night that Jesus sat and talked to Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus wanted to know what he had to do to see the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, unless the one, unless one is born again, and the Greek word there really says born from above. Unless you are born from above, unless it's a heaven-given birth, then you'll never be in heaven. Now, of course, it's born again because we are born physically, but this birth is a heavenly birth that happens. And so he says, unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And so we become new creatures when we become disciples of Christ in the light of what Paul wrote about immersion let me ask you are you a disciple of Jesus Christ and when Jesus said teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you that Greek word is terrine sometimes it's used to guard a prisoner Keeping him, you see. Sometimes it means to watch. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about a father keeping his virgin daughter. It's used to refer to obeying a command in Matthew 19, 17. And of course, that's the sense here. They, it implies not allowing the commands of Jesus to be lost, to guard them. They're precious, and then it means to obey them as a disciple. What are these things that Jesus said we are to keep, we are to preserve, and we are to do? When Bill preached last Sunday, he pointed out that there are many in the world today who want to reduce Jesus to just a great moral teacher. He's much more than that. We'd all go to hell if that's all he was. But he still was and is a great moral teacher in addition to being the Savior of the world. So what are these things that he said we are to do to obey, to keep? The longest recorded teaching sermon of Jesus is what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's interesting to notice the flow of that sermon. Matthew 5, 21 to 26, Jesus says, Crucify your pride when there's a problem between you and a fellow Christian. Crucify your pride and do all that you can to seek restoration. 
if you are bringing your gift to the altar and you remember that a brother has something ought against you, leave your gift and go to him and seek to be reconciled. Crucify your pride. Crucify your lustful impulses, verses 27 to 32. Those lustful impulses which, which are a part of human nature, not only that, get rid of anything that stimulates that lust. Maybe limit the channels available on your television. Crucify your, your lust. Paul said, put to death these things. Verses 33 to 37, crucify that need for vengeance. Prideful attitude that says, nobody will trample over me. I'll get even. Romans 12, Paul said, remember that vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. You see, take up your cross daily. That's what this is talking about. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. Crucify the need that you have for others to see what you do. <laughs> And compliment you. Long prayers in public, wearing broad phylacteries. Do all that you can do in secret. For only you and God know about it. And what you do in secret, the Lord will reward. Whether it's deeds, where it's fasting, for it's prayers rid of that need. Crucify that need for other people to see what you do. Verses 19 to 34, crucify the need to trust in the wealth of the world and anything you can hold in your hand, but instead live an obedient life by faith, believing that God will supply the needs. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, crucify the critical and judgmental spirit that is so part of our human nature. Isn't that a big one? <laughs> the critical spirit. Let me ask you in the light of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? You know, God is so good. When we decide to enter the school of discipleship in His grace and goodness, He cooperates. He takes us at our word and assists us in putting various aspects of our humanity upon the cross. Matthew 23, 6-12, Jesus talks about the need that we as humans often have for titles. He said the Pharisees, they love to uh, go through the marketplace and receive uh, various accolades. They love to be called Father. And Jesus said, don't call anybody Father, but your Father in Heaven. Now certainly we call our earthly fathers Father, but he's talking about that need for a title that somehow our worth is tied to a title or a role. Boy, that's a big one when people are talking about church leadership. Young man with whom I've been spending time, and I love him deeply. He's a dear, dear brother. 
From childhood, prophecies had been given that someday he was going to be a pastor. And in his mind, that meant the head man of significant church. He's tried it. It hadn't worked. And we have pledged that young man to keep him out of church leadership until that need is gone. Until his identity is in Jesus Christ, not in a title and not in a role. That's where identity must be, totally in Jesus. I am, who are you? I'm a disciple of Jesus. Who are you? I'm a slave of Jesus. Not that I am this or that or the other, but my total worth is tied to a title or a role. When I was working for the railroad in the 40s, early 50s, in those days, if you retired from the railroad, instead of getting your pension check in the mail, you had to show up on payday and get paid as if you were still working, and you had to sign a receipt, you got your check. And the check was handed out by the paymaster, just as if everybody who was still working got paid. When the paymaster was on vacation, where I worked, had to take his place, and so we gave the check to the pensioner. It was very, very interesting to notice how many trainmen died within a year after they retired. Their whole role was being an engineer or a fireman or a conductor. That's who they were. That was their identity. That was their worth. And when they weren't that anymore, they had lost their reason to stay alive. How sad. But how many times have we seen that in church leadership, haven't we? That worth is tied to a role and a title and a position instead of being a humble servant of Jesus without a need for a title and fulfilling whatever role God gives you, but you'd be happy whether you had it or not because you're serving God. God loves us enough to help us crucify what needs to be crucified. Drew Graham, no prophet, some of you know, when talking about pride, he said, a way you can tell a dog is dead is kick it. And so if there's, you wonder, do I have pride in a given area? If God loves you enough, he'll come along and he'll kick it. And if it responds, it isn't dead. And so if you have a need for people to recognize what you do, you'll do something Maybe something special around the church building, and nobody notices. <laughs> and so you do something else, and nobody notices. And you do something else, and someone not knowing you did it starts criticizing it. And after a while, you don't care anymore, <laughs> because God has loved you enough to crucify that need.
disciple lives with an underlying motive that he will do all that he can by his life, whatever it is, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul wrote this, verses 5 and following, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. He wrote almost the identical thing to the Colossians, chapter 3, beginning with verse 22. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. Think about that. Now, some of you know about this, maybe most of you do, but to me, as I think in my own life, the greatest opportunity I have ever had to fulfill this concept of working for Jesus and not for men and doing all that I can to glorify God is the years in which I did janitorial work at night. For a few years, in order to make ends meet, during the day I did preacher work. <laughs> and then at night, maybe we'd have a prayer meeting that ended at 8 or 8.30, then I'd go clean office buildings. And I approached that job, I'm not working for any human, but I'm working for the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting thing, you know, I'd been a preacher for so many years, I needed to produce more income for my family. And because I'd been a preacher for so many years, I wondered if I was capable of doing anything else. Will I fail as a janitor? That was a, a real fear I had to overcome. But I determined in my heart I would serve Jesus and not men. So I was not employed by those who wrote my paycheck, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. I cleaned the Pepsi-Cola offices for about a year. I cleaned an office building on 41st, just east of Peoria. And you know the way you measure how well a janitor is doing his job is by what do the restrooms look like. That's the measure. I never mopped a restroom floor, but I scrubbed every restroom floor on my hands and knees with a bucket and a sponge. I polished every toilet and every urinal inside and out every night. Every faucet fixture the chrome clean because I was working for Jesus. The owners of the building on 41st approached me and said, would you stop being a preacher <laughs> and come to work for us? We'd like for you to take over the management of the maintenance of all of our buildings. Of course not. That's not what I'm called to do. <laughs> 
And I do not speak this in any way as a personal compliment, but just to illustrate the difference, the difference in the quality of what we do when we work for Jesus and not work for men. If I had a business and I were employing people, first thing I would look for is, does this person have the skills to do the job I want? And the second thing I'd ask, is this man a disciple of Jesus? Because if he is or if she is, I know I will have the best employee anyone could ever have. Unfortunately, today, we have a horde of people who call themselves Christians who are not disciples of Jesus, and they frankly are an embarrassment in the world of employment. But a disciple of Jesus works to glorify his master, and a mark of everything he does is excellence because he is working for his master. Let me ask you, are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and disciple all the nations, immersing them, name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Amen.